Welcome to Exposing Mold, the podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy discuss all things toxic mold. We've been diving into the medical history of chronic fatigue syndrome, and today we're going to talk about mold avoidance. Eric, you're kind of known as maybe the father of mold avoidance or somebody who advocates for mold avoidance for recovery from exposure. So can you talk to us about how that came on your radar and how you learned about it? Yeah, when the first cluster of mystery malady, which was later called chronic fatigue syndrome, emerged at my old high school, where I would get sick every winter, recover during the summer, and I knew that something there was affecting me so badly that prolonged exposure was dragging me down, I decided to look into that cluster and see what I could learn from it. And the pattern that I saw was that what I was carrying home in my hair and clothing was enough to keep me from recovering on weekends. The um, plume in the middle of Incline Village affected me in just about the same way that the school did. And I realized that just passing through on my way to work was um, having the same effect on me. And I started taking a shower, decontaminating, and doing experiments to find out just how much this was affecting me. Like one of the things that I did was walk right up to the edge of the plume, purposely allow myself to be contaminated. This was in the storm drain on uh, Village Boulevard, right in front of the um, Incline High School where the girls' basketball team cluster occurred. It was on the exact spot that something was slamming me so hard that I could barely walk. And if I went home, took a shower and changed my clothes and avoided that area, I could proceed to walk without crashing. But if I went back and tried it again, or if I failed to change my clothes, I couldn't exercise. So that was essentially how mold avoidance got started. You were carrying something toxic on you that was keeping you sick. That was the first observation. Yeah. And how old were you at that point? This was during the outbreak when I saw how profound it was, and I was 29. Okay, so for a second I thought you were saying when you were a student at Truckee. I did notice at Truckee, if I rode the bus, it would knock me out. I was so eager to get a car. When I started driving to school, uh, I wasn't getting exposure from the buses, and that helped out a lot. But that's when it became apparent to me that I couldn't park near the bus sheds. I couldn't park in the front of the school. And in the book, Osler's Web, the story is told about the original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak, the trucking teachers in that lounge, where the one teacher who decided that area was too much for him got in his camper, not only sat outside, but drove away from the school grounds to sit at the lake. And I thought, that's amazing because that's exactly what I did. I couldn't recover while I was sitting in the parking lot. We're just moving a quarter, half a mile away. That would do it. So here I am seeing the exact same pattern in the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort as I experienced when I was there. And I thought, this is a strategy. This is something I can do to decrease the effects. So what I'm trying to tie in my mind here is the series of events. You were being slammed by that storm drain, but also by the mold that was present in the school, in Truckee High School. Yeah. There were two different feelings or, or maybe you can well, clarify for me here. Well, that was the problem. At this time, we were having an algal bloom 
and all the microbes seemed to be acting up. There was mold growing places we'd never seen it before. And all the sick buildings that had been affecting people mildly suddenly became extremely toxic. Now, I could go down to the beach and feel some of the burning sensation from the algae on the beach. So the question I was going to ask chronic fatigue syndrome researchers, should they ever come, was were the effects additive? Was it something in the air in addition to the toxic mold in the buildings that was adding up and becoming too much for people to handle? And this is why so many people got sick in the sick buildings and didn't recover. Or was it actually feeding the toxic mold and making it more powerful? And Truckee High School is really spectacular for that because it was not directly downwind of the algal bloom. It was 12 miles away, not, not downwind of the lake. So this suggested to me that um, something came in on the wind that was feeding all microbes and making it more powerful. This was uh, later confirmed by a building at the top of Squaw Valley, High Camp, that uh, later had to be torn down due to toxic mold. And yet this building is literally at the top of the mountain where you think it would be completely safe. In this strange turn of events, the first major advocate for uh, MECFS was Thomas Hennessy Jr. And he had suffered from a mild flu-like illness down at the Bay Area, but he was kind of hanging in not really, you know, getting better, getting worse, just continuing on with his job. And he came up to Tahoe, went skiing, went through that very building, and 15 minutes later was laying in the snow, completely paralyzed. Ski patrol came and they were almost gonna load him on a basket to uh, carry him off the hill. He was, he was that incapacitated. And after sitting there, he, he didn't wanna do that. And after sitting there for a long period of time, he eventually recovered where he was able to take the bunny hill, basically the, the main uh, easy run back down to the lodge. But I thought it was fascinating that another prominent advocate for MECFS had gone right to the worst building and collapsed shortly after. And I thought this is surely a clue. Wow, that's crazy. So you're basically saying that there was something in the overarching environment blowing through and causing havoc and, and interfacing with these microbes and these microbes are affecting the environment. They were killing the crawfish, right? in in the lakes and making the molds grow, stocky boris or whatever, you know, other other molds. <laughs> I always say it wrong. What's wrong with me, man? <laughs> is it what is it? Stinky butt ass? <laughs> <laughs> Stacky Botrys. Stacky Botrys. There you go. So it was, it was, you know, basically food for, for all these microbes. Yeah. I realized that I get people angry at me for focusing on the Stacky Botrys, but you see, I have to, because that is the toxic black mold that acted up the most. And that is the one that was documented in the original chronic fatigue syndrome clusters. I can't draw attention to something that wasn't documented. They'll say it's irrelevant. But because of the fact that this was documented and it's a toxic agent that fits the parameters for the illness that the CDC was investigating, it's a good starting point for further investigation and then branch out and see if other microbes were acting up as well. And as it turned out, we'd had some forest fires up at uh, Tao and the uh, firefighters were having to go out there and do mop up, put out the smoldering roots. Some of them can smolder underground for months. So they look for hot spots, dig them up, 
and one of these teams of firefighters dug up a stone and the entire crew got sick. They were taken to the hospital, all of them, the entire crew, with what appeared to be a flu-like illness. And even though they said that what they were doing, they were all in good health and they were digging up a stump and they were obviously exposed to some kind of microbial toxin, there was no follow-up done. And I thought, well, that's not right. If the microbes are acting up, there's some responsibility for medical researchers to try to put the pieces of the puzzle together and follow up on this. Yeah, and at this time, this is when Desert Research Institute was implementing their cloud seeding program, right? Yeah, they'd been doing it for several years prior, and this was our first clue as to what might be going wrong with the environment. I mean, when you see algal blooms, microbes acting weird, you look for something overarching that could have affected the entire region, and that was the only thing that stood out. But I thought that because the illness at this time was thought to be strictly Lake Tahoe, we didn't know about any other clusters or any widespread illness anywhere else. Uh, this brought my attention to the cloud seeding that was specifically done at Lake Tahoe. It turns out that it may have been just a, a lucky break that gave me an insight into it because once I realized that nanoparticle pollution is increasing everywhere, I didn't rule it out. I thought Tahoe is perhaps just a particularly good example of what is happening all over the world. Yeah, and what's pretty crazy is if you go to the Desert Research Institute's website, you see where they've implemented um, their, their program with shooting up the nanoparticles into the atmosphere or wherever. And it corresponds with the map that you created um, that kind of is in line where, where a lot of people had gotten sick. So I, th I thought that was pretty interesting. We'll link those maps below in case you're interested in checking that out. So when the um, plumes were acting up and the toxins were acting worse, I decided to ask Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson if they would help me devise a strategy of what I called extreme avoidance, avoidance, which was studying the properties of these microbes, whatever toxins they may be producing, mapping out where they are, and trying to avoid them as best as possible so that I would inconvenience myself the least. And to this purpose, I made a map of the worst locations and I would take, simply take roads around them. I would try to minimize my time in them. And if I had no choice that I had to pass through them, then if I felt too hit, too tired, too beat up, then I knew that I could decrease a lot of the effects by taking a shower and changing my clothes. So that's really what extreme avoidance is. It doesn't mean to go live in a desert in a tent. And I didn't tell anybody to abandon all their possessions. And I never said anything that anybody must do, like you must abandon your possessions. It was just a suggestion, a clue for researchers to follow up on. Eric, I know that Lisa Petrison collected quite a few stories from you and then published it as a book and, and placed your name on it because you were kind enough to give her that information. But this is where the term like mystery toxin or ick toxin or hell toxin came up. And I know you're, you're not adverse to using mystery toxins since it is a mystery toxin, but I know those, those other terms weren't necessarily yours. So I'm just bringing this up to highlight how some of the information that you've shared about mold avoidance has turned into its own thing when other people evolve it into that. And it's not all necessarily your information that's 
that's being put out there. So if there's any any other rumors you'd like to lay to rest, now's the time. Well, yeah, um, Lisa collected those quotations from various postings that I had made in groups all over the internet, assembled them into a book, and applied some of her own concepts, such as mystery toxin. And I really kind of had no objection to that because it is a mystery. But with these other names, I saw a pattern where people would invent a name and they would apply it to something specific as if this entity had already been settled. You know, no, no further discussion on the matter. Whereas from the very start, I felt that the underlying cause was the ultrafine particles, the silver iodide, the way they were affecting the environment. And the fact that they are toxic of their own accord, even uh, setting any other toxin aside. So I wanted to use a vague abstract term like Agent X or the effect so that people wouldn't lock it into the mind that they are looking for a chemical toxin. Because once they decide that it's a chemical they're looking forward, uh, looking for, they um, shove everything else off the table and they're not looking for the effects of metallic particles. Thank you for that, Eric. I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned earlier about throwing away all your belongings. This seems to be like one of the like number one myths that I see in the groups on Facebook where everyone's like, I had to throw everything away or I'm currently throwing everything away. Could you explain that further? And if there's an alternative to throwing away your belongings or dealing with your belongings during um, a mold incident? Well, years ago, this was a completely unknown quantity and there was no advice. I knew that I was highly reactive to uh, possessions that, or anything that had been in a stachybotrys infested building, but I had no idea how long the toxins would last or if they could be cleaned at all. So when I had a um, toxic mold problem in my own house and was forced to evacuate, I just put all my stuff in storage. You know, the major things that I couldn't store, I, I got rid of. A lot of it went to uh, friends. I sold some of it. But I didn't really know what to expect. And I found that over time, over a period of about five years, these toxins just died down on their own. So when, I, when the internet was invented later and I started getting into groups and I started hearing advice, you must throw everything away. I immediately started telling them that my experience had been, if you could put it in storage for five years, it might just die down. So I always advocated storage and never, never told anybody to throw things away. Yeah, there was even a, um, a person that had come out and said that they did that. They put their belongings in a storage and they were less reactive after a year and a half. That was pretty interesting. Can you speak on that? Yeah, there's been no studies. So we really don't know how long it takes for these toxins to die down or if there's any effective treatment. I know a lot of people talk about ozoning but the results are so mixed that it's not reliable. So we're still very much in the research phase here. And that's what we're asking for, is that researchers do systematic studies on what kind of molds, what kind of toxins, what kind of particulates are present, and what exactly it takes to clean them off, and how long before these toxins denature. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. Um, I want to move on to the next myth that I see a lot. It seems that a lot of people think mold avoidance is living in a tent in the desert. Well, from the very start, when I proposed extreme avoidance, where I was mapping out the sick buildings, the storm drains, 
the locations I wanted to stay away from. The entire purpose was so that I wouldn't have to be so reactive that I would wind up living in the desert. So extreme avoidance is really a strategy to remain in town and maneuver as comfortably as possible around source points. I, I know I picked a bad term. I shouldn't have called it extreme avoidance, but I was kind of winging it and had to invent something on the spot. And that's what I came up with. I thought about changing the term to strategic evasion or strategic perceptification, something to indicate that I was actually putting a little effort into this. But I found that internet groups did a really peculiar thing. When I started to describe my strategy, they would spread rumors saying that, well, Eric is telling everybody to avoid everything, even water stains, even the mere thought of mold, to abandon everything, go live in the desert in a tent with no friends, family, and only rattlesnakes and scorpions for com company. And when I realized that they're going to rail against my description of going to the desert to get a taste of what it was like to get clear, I thought, well, fine. I can let these people sort of weed themselves out. And from that time on, I started saying, well, I went to the godforsaken desert. And that was pretty effective because that's that's exactly what people said. They They got so angry that all the people that had a natural disinclination to listen and try out the experiment kind of took themselves out of the equation. That's funny. That was my original perception before, you know, I understood your thoughts and ideas uh, behind mold avoidance. I, <laughs> my husband and I did go and live in a tent in the desert, you know, and um, I have to say, I felt pretty damn good. You know, I felt really, really good and like Death Valley and other places. But then I started to understand that I, I'm still okay in the city. It's just in certain areas, I have to be careful because I start having symptoms. Once I started learning more about you and you were providing me with more information, I started to understand, okay, my life doesn't have to be in a tent in the desert. I just have to learn how to navigate buildings and environments. And kind of what you said, those source points. Yeah, I, I did actually go live in a tent in the desert for a while because I wanted to maximize my recovery. But in terms of expressing this to other people, I just said to do it as an experiment. I called it to get clear, getting clear, get a taste of what it's like to be free of mold so you know what you're shooting for. The other thing is um, Lisa invented the, the term sabbatical. And to me, that's a paid leave from when you've done your time at school, you get your summer vacation off or a, a leave of absence. And the term that I always liked was a mold hiatus. Are we doing what these researchers are doing now, Eric? Are we reinventing terms? <laughs> I, I think we've got excellent, English is an amazing language. It's very descriptive. I think we have very good words for just about everything we need to describe. And there's really very little need to invent new ones. You're right. You're right. I'm just, I'm just yanking your chain over here. Okay. We, we know, we know it, we know it like as mold avoidance. So let's keep it. Like CFS, mold avoidance, let's keep it at that. <laughs> yeah, the other thing is, um, when I say mold avoidance, I really mean mold avoidance. If I wanted to say bacteria avoidance or toxin avoidance, that's what I would have said. I see that more and more people are using mold avoidance as a euphemism for anything that bothers them. And this is a mistake and it's going to play into the hands of deniers and doctors that don't want to listen to us. So I am in favor of being fairly precise about vocabulary, 
But at the same time, I don't see any reason why people try to say that you can't say mycotoxins or you can't say toxic mold. Because when I say toxic mold, I'm referring to the specific toxic molds such as stachybotrys, ketonium, that are known toxin producers. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with expressing it that way. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I wanted to move on to another myth um, that you had, again, mentioned earlier. People are under the impression that they have to pursue mold avoidance by themselves. They have to leave not only their belongings, but their family behind. Well, everybody has to act according to the dictates of their own circumstances. And if their entire family is drenched, I can see where they are driven to a point where in order to survive, to maintain their health, they might have to abandon their family. Uh, it all depends on how reactive they are and how cooperative their family is. Because if you can talk your family into conducting a certain degree of mold avoidance, so they're not carrying contamination home with them, then you should be able to conduct cooperative effort in keeping toxic molds out of your environment, have a safe zone where you can recover. And that kind of goes with what you were just describing, like just making sure that you are following strict decontamination protocols. Yeah, when I go into a building and I feel mold hits, which is a sense of brain compression, uh, unease, a sense of doom and despair, heart palpitations, I um, step outside and I will actually sniff my clothes to find out if I can induce further heart palpitation. If I get a reaction to my clothing, or if I just sense that it's on me, that tells me that I need to decontaminate. If the building gave me hits, so I know there was something there, but I wasn't necessarily carrying the contamination on me, then I know I've got more leeway. It's not quite as dangerous, and I probably will go ahead and decontaminate anyway, just as a way to keep myself safe, but not always. If um, I get a really minor sense of exposure, and I get out of a, a building and recover immediately and have no linger effects, then I won't even bother to decontaminate. What does decontamination look like? What is it that, that you would do? If I have really strong mold hits from my clothing, then I will drop my clothes at the front door, throw them outside, proceed immediately to a shower and wash my hair thoroughly and change into fresh clothing. I will then take the um, clothes outside, grab them with tongs or gloves, immerse them in water so they won't cross-contaminate, and then I can deal with them later. I can either take them to the washing machine or just put it off. But I find that if I get contaminated clothing, really badly contaminated, and don't do anything about it, just throw it in a pile or in a bag and let it sit for a while, it feels like the toxins will depart the spores and fragments and absorb into the material, the cloth itself. And the reason I think so is because if I immerse the, uh, my clothes quickly after exposure or um, you know, wash them right away, they always clean up easily. Whereas if I let them sit, I can wash them over and over again and they may not clean up at all. So I think there's a time value here. The quicker you can wash your clothes, the more easily the spores and fragments will be washed out, the less likely the toxins will ooze out of the spores and fragments and get into the material, at which point they are almost impossible to clean. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I know when, um, 
Uh, that's something that you had recommended to me. So my husband and I were really strict on that. And my husband would just look at me like, what the hell? What are you doing? You know, I would throw my, you know, um, do you know in Bruce Almighty when uh, Jim Carrey, he just like throws his clothes off? <laughs> I would literally do that, you know, and just like say, hey, throw it in a bag, go run in the shower. And when you're going through it, it feels so crazy. But you know, this is what you have to do to survive. Yeah, that jacket, that, the one that I uh, wear to the symposiums, and when I'm climbing Mount Whitney, that's actually kind of a symbolic jacket. The reason you see it in all my pictures is because that's been with me throughout my mold experimentations. And I actually went to doctors and I, when it was contaminated and told them, now I've deliberately been into a sick building and now my jacket is contaminated. I washed and changed my clothes but my jacket, I left, it's still contaminated. And you can test me right now because I'm getting heart palpitations from my jacket. And if I take my jacket off, the heart palpitations will go away. So we can confirm immediately right here with a stethoscope, how this contamination phenomenon works. And the doctor's response was, well, I believe that you've developed a senseless fear of mold and you've invented this idea in your mind that there's something really toxic on it. And by taking off the jacket, you are symbolically freeing yourself of this exposure and relieving yourself of this invention in your mind. <laughs> and I'm going, you son of a bitch, it's on my jacket, you jerk. You should have offered him to wear it and see how he felt. I think that uh, unless you're hypersensitized, he wouldn't feel a thing and that would only serve to disprove your case. Yeah, other people have tried that. They've, they've led doctors and researchers to sick buildings and they go, well, I don't feel anything. So this is really a hypersensitization phenomenon. And if you look at the trucking teachers, the original cluster, they recovered on weekends and during the summer, they could withstand the toxins until they got that virus that went through, the Tahoe flu, the 1985 China flu that went through. And it was the combination of the flu and the exposure to the sick buildings that put them under the curve, created some kind of permanent immune damage and their inability to recover from then on. And that is the syndrome that was called chronic fatigue syndrome. Thank you for hitting that point. I wanted to um, continue on. We just have a few more myths that we've seen defined in these groups. And one of them is people seem to think that they can treat themselves solely with herbs, supplements, um, brain retraining programs, medications. Um, and some feel that they're almost superior to mold avoidance. Can you um, just clear the air on that? Well, when I realized that uh, there are mold toxins, I got a lot of my information from the multiple chemical sensitivity world where they are familiar with concepts like spreading, where you can be reactive to one primary irritant, the one that triggered you. And over time, if you fail to stay away from it, you will develop more and more layers of secondary chemical sensitivities. And part of their paradigm, the chemical toxicity paradigm, is that when the body can't tolerate these things, it will try to store them in the tissues so they can be given off gradually so you don't have an overwhelming cytokine cascade. So in theory, these toxins you can't handle and not just mold, but pretty much any chemical, the body will store it in the toxins 
and it will keep it there until the body feels safe. Now, all these herbs and supplements and detoxification regimens are based on the idea that this, and the binders especially, the ones, all the binders that uh, you're supposed to send through your intestines to catch these toxins. Well, what happens if you are not in a safe enough mode for the body to release these toxins so they're not getting into the blood and the intestines to be absorbed and removed? So I think that most of these supplements and herbs are complete waste as long as you remain in an exposure situation. Whereas our experience by going to the desert is that once clear of toxins where the body feels safe, detoxification occurs so naturally that none of these things are even needed. Yeah, I, I think Keely and I definitely have had some experiences with that. I mean, I remember just doing everything under the sun when I was sick. This is before knowing it was mold. I mean, a perfect diet, exercise, stress. I mean, just everything under control and nothing was working and I was getting worse. And it wasn't till I removed myself from that home, I was actually able to finally breathe and heal and get, get much better. I'm not 100%, no way, shape or form, but I am so much better than being in that toxic exposure. Yeah, during the incline outbreak, there were a few others of us who started practicing mold avoidance. None of us were studied, but two of the really interesting cases, and these were mentioned in Osler's web, was an engineer and a maid at the local casino that got sick the basement of the casino, which everybody knew was loaded with moldy carpets and had been making people sick for years. Well, this engineer in the maid actually met at a support group and I discussed, discussed the mold phenomenon with them. And they told me, yeah, everybody knows that the basement will make people sick, but if anybody talks about it, they get fired. So these two became essentially star witnesses for the mystery malady they were mentioned in the book. They were Dr. Peterson patients. They did all the therapies. None of it worked. And eventually <laughs> they decided that they were both sick and felt like their lives were a wreck. They hooked up, they got married and they moved to Reno to get away to, from the moldy buildings, found employment in a much better casino down there and recovered about 80% of normal simply by leaving the area and taking some efforts to stay away from mold. Well, good for them. Good for them. I wonder what they're doing now. Fantasy uh, mold marriage story with a happy ending. I know. We got to get those two on so we can really, you know, they can dish out their, their story and hopefully they're still married. Um, anyways, um, so my last myth on the board, well, maybe, maybe not uh, last unless Eric has any more that he would like to bring up. Uh, the last one that I have is I won't be able to live in a house again. How do I live normally now that I'm ailing and dealing with mold illness? Well, when people become so reactive that they're having problems with just about everything, formaldehyde, pesticides, carpet fumes, diesel exhaust, the works, it feels pretty hopeless. But just as in the multiple chemical sensitivity world, when you start peeling away these secondary reactivities, life gets a heck of a lot easier. And as it turns out, there does seem to be something so specific to the mold phenomenon that if you can hone in on that, that life can become quite easily you know, tolerable. Uh, most buildings, in fact, come back to being tolerable. You can see that I'm in one right now. 
am having zero problems in this place. I don't sense any stachybotrys here. If I go into a building that has stachybotrys, I still get the mold hits. It doesn't knock me to the floor. I can tolerate it now for short periods of time, but that's the one thing that threatens to put me back down. In all other aspects, I could return to a completely normal appearing life. So what you're saying is the root of these layered multiple chemical sensitivities is mold. I believe that is a substance that is being emitted by mold. And that's the reason why I keep asking researchers to look into mold, because if they really look hard at it, I think they can't help but stumble into whatever this mysterious substance is. So this substance is really, from what I'm hearing, is knocking people down and just kind of opening the floodgate to sensitivities from chemicals to viruses to pretty much anything that could harm the body. Yeah, the circumstantial evidence keeps pointing back at one agent, one mechanism that seems to tie this whole thing together. And as we've discussed, I believe that mechanism is nanoparticles. I mean, they have the ability to uh, attract and transport toxins. So it only seems reasonable to me that in the nanoparticle form, if you have silver iodide, the cloud seeding particles combined with whatever sticks to them, whether it's formaldehyde or satrotoxins, the stachybotrys toxins, that they are going to be easily inhaled and this might serve as a primary cause for all of this secondary stuff that we see going on around us. During the Taha outbreak, people pointed at just about every chemical, every VOC, every pesticide, anything that they could possibly think of. And it was very confusing because it all happened at the same time. And when I tried to get rid of all the confounders, the only thing that I could find as a common denominator was the cloud seeding. So that's what brought my focus to bear on nanoparticle pollution as a prime mover in the mystery illness. Wow, and I think that's an issue with a lot of people who are dealing with mold, is we think it's just the mold, right? We, we are fascinated by it, we are consumed with it. We're like, what is going on? It's mold. But what you're saying and what you're theorizing and actually not theorizing, there's a lot of evidence out there is nanoparticles are grouping up with these toxins and they're able to bypass the blood brain barrier and able to elude the immune system and causing havoc in our bodies. Yeah, the uh, original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort, they asked researchers, they asked the Center for Disease Control specifically for help with what was in that room. And when they brought up the word mold, the response was, well, there's no reason to look because mold can't do that. At that time, mold was thought to be just an allergy. So they reverted back to asking, well, just please look into the room. Well, what do you want us to look into in the room? There's nothing in there. There's you know, a copy machine, that's ruled out. There's carpet, what, what would you like? And Gerald Kennedy asked CDC epidemiologists directly to look into the filters. Clearly it was in the air. It was something they could feel that they were inhaling. So if they were to only look into the filters, they couldn't help but stumble into whatever this unknown substance was. That's all it would have taken. So from a researcher point of view, if you have something that is so specifically associated with making you ill, there's no reason to divert to other unrelated factors why not just look into the very thing 
that the people are pointing at and stick with it until you find a mechanism that explains it. Thank you again for tuning in today. It's been a wonderful story and it, it's going to continue unraveling. Today you got a little taste of the nanoparticle theory, which we will definitely dive into even more on another episode. But our next episode coming up, Eric will tell his story of when he was in the army and when he had his first exposures. I know a lot of people are wondering, who is Eric? What, you know, what is his background? How does he have any type of authority in providing information on mold avoidance? And we're going to dive into that. Eric, again, served in the military um, and has had some interesting experiences and has a lot of training in biological decontamination protocols. And that's what makes him an expert on dealing with mold. And that's why he has developed amazing decontamination protocols for people dealing with mold because he's had extensive training in that. So we will go ahead and provide that information to our listeners in the upcoming episodes. So stay tuned again to those who have donated. Oh my God, D. I want to just shout out D real quick. I don't know how to pronounce your last name, so please forgive me, but I was taken aback when I checked my email and I saw how much you donated. I am so grateful for you. We are so grateful for you and grateful for everyone that has donated to our campaign here. And again, we are just sitting on this money and we are using it for the podcast and just trying to figure out what we want to do with this podcast going forward. Um, Again, if we want to turn it into something larger, it's a possibility. And we look forward to that. And we look forward to unraveling those possibilities. So again, thank you so much. Please like, share, uh, comment on our content and donate if you can to our GoFundMe and Patreon accounts. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time.